We're very grateful for the growth in the work thus far. We do need to grow 30 to 60 times faster. We know that in time, and I think God will do that when these things in prophecy speed up and as we get closer to the end, and I really mean that. But we're getting increasing numbers of go-tos, you know, prospective people writing in for a visit, calling in for a visit. And uh, I got the latest report a couple of days ago, and once again, we have quite a number more than we did during the previous four-month period. I usually added up four months by four months, so we're grateful. And a while ago, we announced, and maybe Mr. Ames announced while I was out, of the growth in the church attendance, we were 6.5%. But now, church administration has given us an update, and now it's gone up to an increase of 6.7%. Uh, for the United States during the last 12-month period. So so that's fine. We're very grateful for that. And things are coming along very, very well in all those ways. I, I know you're following prophecy, and I hope that you will. Our whole society is changing, and you know that. I want you to think about something. What if you heard this sound one night? Open up in the name of the law. Open up. Open up. And you open the door, and there are two or three big hostile-looking policemen or paramilitary men from this new army that they're talking about having here in the country, not the regular army. And they ask you, as they act belligerent, are you a member of the living church of God? And they look like it's bad if you are. You've got to think about it ahead of time, brethren. Something like that could happen. I don't think it'll happen exactly like that, but it could happen. Sometimes those things happen in Nazi Germany, and people were found to be Jews or a member of an unpopular sect or cult or whatever, political group, and they just disappeared. As you know, in Argentina, they had the disappeared ones, thousands of them, under one of their regimes a while back. And they found later that the disappeared ones were taken up in the airplanes and dumped out over the sea. They called them the disappeared ones. These things have happened all over the world, even in modern times. And they may happen to us, and we need to think about it ahead of time. Are you a member of the living church of God? Do you follow their teachings? Now, you might immediately be afraid and think it's bad. What you've got to realize is that there are several different ways these things can turn out and the circumstances can be different. When David found that Saul was looking for him to kill him, he had his wife, Michael, let him down outside a window and she put a, a kind of a, a false body in where he was, you know, and he got away. It wasn't a question of what would happen, and it wasn't a question of having to lie. He just got out of there. The Apostle Paul was let down over the city wall in Damascus, and that was all right. He didn't have to just voluntarily surrender and let them take him and beat him up and kill him. But if the police come and look him right at you and ask you a question, if they ask Paul a question, what would he do? When the king, who was in total control of people's lives in the time of Nebuchadnezzar and the other Babylonian monarchs told people they were not to pray to anyone else except him because these enemies of Daniel got them to pass that, did Daniel quit praying? No, he did not. He did not. 
He knew that in spite of danger, he had to put God first because if he let even an order of the king cut him off from God, that was more dangerous than anything Nebuchadnezzar or any other king could do to him, if you follow me. He was obeying God. He was going to obey God rather than men. When Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were ordered by the king were to submit to any righteous order of the government, and God tells us that, even in times of stress. And if they say, open up, and we have any reason to believe it's the police, we should open up and tell them the truth. But when they found that they were asked, are you going to obey the king's law or not, and worship this idol, they said, no, we will not. And they were thrown, and actually, in their minds, I don't know what they were thinking, you don't either, they might have thought it was too late, because the soldiers grabbed them and took them to the edge of this great big, maybe an open pit furnace, I take it, something like that, and threw them right in. A blazing furnace was so powerful that even the men... Some of the men throwing the men were killed themselves. And when they were flying through the air, going down into the embers and as a blazing furnace, they probably thought it's too late. Was it too late? No. Was it too late when Daniel was actually put in this pit or dungeon and then the lions came at him? I, th I don't know how to describe it. It's kind of amusing to think of it. You've heard me say this perhaps, but it may be the lions actually came right up and he thought, well, my life's in your hands, O God, and maybe lifted up his eyes rather than stare at the lions. And the lions came up and sniffed at him and turned around and thought, he's got B.O. and turned around and went the other way. They just sniffed and God put it in their animal mind to turn around and go the other way. It was not too late. Just understand that. It is never too late for God. Now, there can be several different outcomes in the types of persecutions we're going to face in the future. And they will come. Please understand that, brethren. They will come. As I see these events speeding up in the world, I feel it's imperative to warn you about it a little bit ahead of time. This sermon probably won't be played in the outlying churches till after the feast. That's fine. But we all need to understand these things. The number one thing that might happen is they would arrest you and maybe threaten you or beat you and then let you go later through some court proceeding and after threatening you, as they did the apostles on occasion. The second possible scenario is there might be a permanent imprisonment. They would arrest you and put you in some holding prison for this kind of civil disobedience or religious cults or people that oppose the administration, whatever administration it is. We don't know which administration it will happen under, but something like that may happen. It's certainly going to happen in other countries. It could happen here. You know that. Thirdly, it may be they will announce to you when you say, yes, I'm a member of the living church of God. They will say, okay, come with us. And your heart may sink, and then they'll take you down, and there's a big bus and a whole bunch of church members, and then they'll take you to the airport and fly you out of the country. And they may fly you to the Middle East and get rid of you, and you will be taken in a strange way that you did not expect to the place of safety. 
God can bring these things about in ways we do not know. I don't think it will happen just like this. I'm just saying you don't want to always think it's going to be bad. It may not be bad. Certainly Daniel must have thought it was bad when the animals approached him and Shavrach, Meshach, and Abednego, I'm sure, thought it was bad. There's no question because it shows they were actually thrown in the furnace. It doesn't say the animals came at Daniel, but I bet they did at first. But they were thrown into the furnace. And he then looked in there and he, he saw a fourth person. Ooh, <laughs> a fourth person. That was Jesus Christ. Wow. They had the Son of God with them, who was not yet the Son of God at that time, but the Logos with them in the furnace. And they came out, their hair was not singed, and their clothes did not even smell of fire. God totally protected them when it was too late. So supposedly, you'd think so. In any case, brethren, we have got to build genuine faith in God in order to get through the trials to come. And you've got to give, build genuine faith in the Jesus Christ of the Bible, the true Christ of the Bible. And we've got to really understand that. I'm going to ask you the question, which is my topic today, how much do you really trust in Christ? And in God, of course, Christ is God. How much do you really trust in Christ? Turn with me back to Matthew chapter 10, if you would. Matthew chapter 10. And let's begin reading here in Matthew 10 and verse 17. Jesus said in verse, well, 16, he said, I'm going to send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, he told the apostles. And he's sending us out in a sense today. And you'll see this prophecy actually comes down to our time and is talking about his disciples at the time of the end as well. But beware of men as they will deliver you up to councils and scourge you. In other words, you'll get beat up, scourge you, whip you in their synagogues. You will be brought before governors and kings. Now, Mr. Armstrong went before governors and kings on a diplomatic visit, but this is different. Men are going to grab you and bring you before them in a way you, you they may bring you in shackles or chains, whatever. You'll be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and the Gentiles. So you're to be scared to death. No, Christ says, don't be scared to death. When they deliver you up, do not worry about how or what you should speak, for it will be given you in that hour what you should speak, for it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father who speaks in you. But, my brethren, you've got to know that God is your Father. Again, I tell you again and again, please get, get with it. Get all the way in the middle of God's church. Not going to help me. I'm not going to live forever. I don't want to be announcing my death all the time either. I might live another 10 or 15 years, you know. Mr. Ruddleson was telling me his mother had, what was it, a dozen or eight, 15 uh, strokes and lived right on 10 or 12 more years. So that can happen to me very easily. Whatever it is, we've got to be busy doing God's work and putting our faith and trust in God. That's the whole point. You've got to put your faith and trust in God. You don't put your faith and trust in Mr. Ames or me or Mr. Partian or any of us or Dr. Winnale or any of our other leaders. That's not the point. You put your faith and trust in God and you follow us if you see we are preaching the truth and doing God's work. You say, well, you're not doing it perfectly. That's right. Do you know anyone at any time in human history who has ever done it perfectly except Jesus Christ? 
No, you don't. So you better figure that out. Try to find out who is teaching the truth, the closest to the truth, the most of the truth, and who is doing God's work more fully at this time through God's Spirit in them and follow them as they follow Christ. And you've got to learn to do that. In that way, put your faith and trust in God and in the church as you see where the church really is. But he says... The father will speak in you. Now, brother will deliver up brother to death, the father the child, and children will rise up against their parents. Even some of your grown children will turn away from you and cause them to be put to death. They'll be scared. Some of them will betray us. And God tells us that ahead of time. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. That's one reason I know this work is going to get a lot, lot bigger. They don't know about us yet. All, you know, over in uh, uh, Matthew 24 and then Luke 21, it says all nations, all nations don't know about us yet. They can't hate us because they don't even know about us. But they will know about us before the end of this work. This work will greatly increase if we keep on our present track. Because we are doing most of the work, we're crying out to God for more power, and He will give that power as we walk with Him. But we have got to learn to genuinely walk with God, brethren, and put our faith and trust in the living Jesus Christ, the living Jesus Christ, who is the living head of the church and our Savior, our rock, our refuge, our high tower, our protector in time of trouble. So he says, You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but he who endures... Are you willing to endure and put your faith and trust in God when it really gets rough? You've got to do that, brethren. He who endures to the end. Not he who starts out and as long as the air conditioning works okay here in the hall and, and everyone's nice to you, you endure. But if the air conditioning is not very consistently good or the sermons are not just what you want or you get corrected or one of the deacons sits you in the wrong place or you get offended and say, well, I'm out of here. Well, that's nice. You're out of where? You might be out of eternal life. You know what I mean? I'm not threatening you. I'm just getting you to think. If this is the church of God and we're doing God's work, you'd better not get offended over any little thing that comes along. You can't afford to do that. You just cannot afford to do that. And understand that. And I know what I'm talking about. I could have got offended, I honestly could say, I think hundreds of times, because Mr. Armstrong was not perfect. And those of us he actually knew the most and I think loved the most at that time. He called us his sons in the Lord. I think the ones he would correct the strongest and, and yell at, he had a strong voice, were Dick Armstrong, Ted Armstrong, Herman Hay, and me. And, and later on, uh, Mr. Portuner, or two or three others around him. And not that he hated us, but if he really knew us, he would treat us as sons. And uh, so we, we had to think, you know, okay... I got yelled at my father. I got yelled at by Coach Kaminsky playing football for, you know, he'd say, drive, drive. What's wrong? Is your leg broken? And, you know, so on. So I was being used to yell, yelled at by various coaches and so on. But many other things happened, as I've told you, in my life and others in the work where things were turned around and looked bad. And God let me sent, be sent into England one time just to get me away at one point from someone who was having problems because I knew too much about their problems. And I understood that. And my daughter Elizabeth is sitting there, and she heard about it from one of their sons. And she said, oh, 
we're being sent away because so-and-so doesn't like you. I said, it's okay, and it's all going to work for good, remember? And, and it did work for good. It gave them an international education, and they were able to see Europe and grow up and have an exposure. All things work for good in the end. It may not seem like good right now at the time. And you've got to understand that, brethren. Don't get ready to get your feelings hurt every time you get a chance. But anyway, he who endures to the end will be saved. But when they persecute you in this city, flee to another. You shall not have gone over the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Well, he had already come. He was there telling them that. So what is this talking about? This is talking to his disciples, us, at the time of the end. We will not have gone over all the cities of Israel. There will be certain cities that we may not have even had a television program on or have not heard much about us. We'll cover most of the nation, but there may be cities that we reach very little or not at all. Cities of Israel. God knows where they are. Christ knows who they are. And the cities of Israel still exist. So he said then a little later, verse 28, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. They'll kill the body, but they cannot totally extinguish your life. But rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in Gehenna. And of course, he's talking the soul, meaning the, the life or possibility of life. Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin, just for a penny? And not one of them falls to the ground. Not one sparrow. Think about that, brethren. This is not some allegory. This is not some analogy. Christ said what he meant, and when you study the whole Bible, you realize that these are not just general things. He means it. Not one sparrow will fall to the ground except God knows about it. You say, well, God doesn't know about it. Yes, he does. He they may not take note of it very much, but he, if man can invent these little machines now, computers that can process, as you know now, billions and billions of pieces of information does the mind of God who created the mind of these men who makes these machines, do you think God's mind is able to process that information? Of course it is. Again, I ask you, how big is your God? Of course God can keep track of every sparrow and all about us. But the very hairs of your head are still numbered. And God has no problem with Mr. Hart's hair there. He's made that much easier for <laughs> the very fine sermonette, by the way. I appreciate it. But anyway, pick on these young men who have their unusual hairstyle. <laughs> the very hairs of your head are all numbered. And he does do that. But that should be very encouraging for us, all kidding aside. God knows. He literally knows that. He knows everything about my body and what's going wrong and why and what he's going to do about it, which he may do any day or hour or minute. He knows all about your body and your aches and pains. And when you come to counsel us for anointing, we try to ask you in general what it is and give you some advice if we have some advice that we think is proper uh, to do your part. But God knows things even a whole team of doctors could not know. They know that. They know some things. And that's the reason many medical experts tell you to get a second opinion. Because the first opinion may be wrong. And sometimes the second opinion would be wrong. You know that. They don't know. Sometimes they do know and sometimes they don't know. 
But God does know. He knows exactly everything going on in every single part of your body. All the bubbles going through your bloodstream or whatever it is. He knows all about it because he made it. So he is taking care of you. And we've got to have that concept. You know, if you're the bang, 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 open up. God knows where I am. Angels are around me right now. God is my father. God will take care of me. I am his servant I'm not perfect, but I'm trying. Say, Father, guide me, protect me, be with me, and then tell the truth. Have faith and trust in God no matter what happens. Do not give up and quit and turn away from God during persecution, during trials, tests, sicknesses, death. Some of us will die, of course, before this work is over. You know that. We have a number of older ministers that are here and a number of older brethren that are here. And some of you are already in your 70s or 80s or whatever, and we may not all live to the very end. We're going to keep, we're going to hopefully go to our grave just like the servants of old. And they waited to be gathered to their people. When Jacob was dying, he'd say, Oh, God, please save me. Take me to the hospital. He said, No. He said, Look here, Ephraim and Manasseh and, and uh, Reuben and... And, and Simeon, you go do this and you go take care of that, you know, and this is the way it's going to work out. He gave them instruction. He wasn't afraid. He had his faith and trust in God. Do not fear, therefore, for you are more value than many sparrows. You're made in the image of God. He will take care of you. Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him will I confess before my Father in heaven. Well, you say, no, I don't believe in God. No, I'm not a member of that church. I don't want to get in trouble here. I'm not a member of that church. You've got to think about it ahead of time. That would be a lie if you are a member of the church. Or if you decide right then you're not a member, what does that tell Jesus Christ about you, <laughs> if you follow me? Does that show him you're a faithful servant of his? But whoever denies me before men, if you deny Christ... Well, you say, I do not believe in Christ. I am not a member of His church. Him will I also deny before my Father who is in heaven. I don't think any of us wants that. I do not want to have Christ, you know, deny me or have before the Father. And I think that we would do anything to prevent that, to put our faith and trust in God and not tell Christ we're going to turn on you. Peter turned on Him. But that was before he was converted. And when that cock crowed, the words of Jesus came to Peter. And it shows in one account, I think Matthew's, he went out, it says, and wept bitterly. He was apparently a big man. And I imagine his shoulders just shook and he was crying, what's wrong with me? I don't understand. Well, he didn't understand because he was not converted yet till after the day of Pentecost. But we have the opportunity for God's Holy Spirit in us today. And Peter did not yet have that. And afterward then, he was willing to put his life on the line again and again and tell the whole Jewish leadership, we will obey God rather than man, he told them. And all kinds of such statements he made, taking his very life in his hands once he had God's Holy Spirit. So how will you answer the knock on the door? Please think about it. How will I answer the knock on the door? Each of us has had various experiences. 
I want to tell you a little bit about how I would answer the knock on the door, only to help you. I'm not going to try to dwell on uh, my life, and I hope I don't do that too much, but having faced death and this and that, and this condition makes me think about it more, I guess. And because, beside this, is a special week to me. (laughs) Some of you have heard me say it around the campus here. The campus, I mean the office. It is sort of a campus now. My wife keeps telling me, Rob, there isn't any campus. Well, we, we this, this is the campus, the living university now, so we do have a sort of a campus. But anyway, I came to Ambassador College exactly 60 years ago this week. I came within the first 10 or 12 days, the first two weeks. And I, I know it wasn't the second or third. I sort of vaguely remember it's the 6th or 9th or 10th or something of September. So it must have been 60 years ago this week. And as I've told you before, I won't tell you the whole story. It would take too much time from the sermon. But I came from a mainstream Protestant background, frankly. I was a Methodist, and both my parents attended a Methodist college, Baker University in Baldwin City, Kansas, out west of Kansas City, where they met and then later married. And my grandmother was superintendent of Sunday schools at one time for the whole city for the Methodist church, very strong Methodist. And so I heard all about the Methodists. Many of my friends were Methodists. A number of my friends were Presbyterian and community and certain others, Episcopalian. We were mainly white Protestant Anglos, you know what I mean, typical in a small Midwestern American city, the city of about 40,000, swelled up to 55,000 during the Second World War because Camp Crowder, the largest Signal Corps base on earth at one time, was just 18 miles south of town and all the officers and non-coms came up there on weekend. It got kind of exciting. I've told you about some of the bad things happened in an exciting time. But anyway, it was basically that kind of a background. And I heard sermons about being good and having good principles and being nice people, which is fine, But I never heard virtually a word about prophecy, about the whole purpose of human existence, about God's Sabbath, about the holy days, or all kinds of things that we today understand because our minister just did not understand. He was a very nice man, and his son named Clark was a good friend of mine in my class, as a matter of fact. But I began to seek for God and seek for the meaning of life as I've told you, after the death of one of my two or three best friends, Jimmy Mallet, who got his neck broken in a wrestling accident. And Jimmy and I had rolled around on the Bermuda grass like two little bear cubs, lovingly wrestling with each other and trying out our strength on each other over and over and over. And when Jimmy got his neck broken doing the very thing that he and I had done so often, that hit me like a ton of bricks. And I was a pallbearer, and as his body was being lowered into the grave, I can't remember all kinds of details of things, but I remember certain situations vividly. And I can remember sitting there, standing there, as a 15-year-old boy, saying, boy, what's going on here, Jimmy? They're toting his body right down there, and I knew it, and yet it hit me. And using those days, they'd sometimes start throwing dirt on the casket right while you were standing there. And I almost wanted to stop them, but I thought, oh, I can't stop them. And Jimmy's dead. He's really dead. Really dead. He's never coming back. And so it hit me. Why, why did God let Jimmy die? He was a year older than me and a little bit tiny shorter, but so we were about the same size and weight, but so we were good, good wrestling partners. <laughs> but anyway, he was gone at age 16. 
And so I began to read various things and seek for a meaning in life. And as I read various pamphlets and religious stuff and talked to my parents and talked to others, I talked to my uncle, Dr. C. Paul Meredith, and we started listening, as he'd already been listening, to some of these religious preachers. I can't remember the names. There were four or five of them. But we narrowed it down pretty quickly to Gerald B. Winrod from Wichita, Kansas, I think he was. And he was on XEG just before Mr. Armstrong. And he was talking about the pyramid. And he had a little bit of the truth about Israel. And the pyramid inches and the great pyramid are supposed to denote so much time and prophecy, which is a bunch of uh, hooey, you know. But they have all this kind of stuff they got into that Mr. Armstrong threw out, of course, and he could see the sort the wheat from the chaff. But then Mr. Armstrong came on, and he, more than all the other ideas from all the other preachers and pamphlet, religious pamphlets and stuff I'd written, I took a course in college in philosophy and tried to understand what Aristotle and Plato and, and Spinoza and, and modern ones like David Hume and and uh, these other modern ones we're trying to come up with, more and more to, up to our time at least. And they were all all confused. I could see that. They're just a lot of big words and talk. Didn't make any sense at all. And Mr. Armstrong made sense. And he made me realize there was a real God and a genuine purpose. Well, I've told you the other part of the story. I found out that he was saying way back when that American Britain would go down. And he said, if you British people don't repent in 1954 in these meetings, the British Empire will be no more. And this custodian came up and was kind of threatening, and I came up real quick and stood right with Mr. Armstrong. I was young and more macho then, and I had my hands ready. You know, I thought, Mr. Armstrong, he makes a move at Mr. Armstrong, he's going to be on the ground. I wasn't going to hit him. I was just going to throw him on the ground. I, was, I, I wasn't going to kiss him, though, I'll tell you that. <laughs> but I was ready to help Mr. Armstrong. And he then also said, if you don't really repent, you know, God is going to take away the sea gates he has given you. And he named the Suez Canal and two or three others. And then my wife and I, Elizabeth's mother, uh, she was actually pregnant with Elizabeth when we were sent over there two years later to get the London church going. And... Right while we were there in the winter of 56, 57, the Suez crisis came and the Suez Canal was taken away from uh, from Britain right then. And I'd heard Mr. Armstrong say that right there two years earlier. And since then, they've lost the, the Strait of Malacca. They've lost uh, the Simonson Space controlling the tip around South Africa. They've lost the Bab el-Mandeb, the southern entrance of the Red Sea. The Suez is the northern entrance. And they've lost the Strait of Hormuz, through which 70% of the Middle East oil passes. They have lost sea gates all over the world. And America's lost its only special sea gate. The Panama Canal is gone. And the only two sea gates still left of any importance are Gibraltar and, uh, and the, the tip around South America, controlled by the Falkland Islands. And they're both being threatened, as you know. I think one or both of those will go before long. God is to doing exactly what this man, Herbert W. Armstrong, said would happen. And as Mr. Gwynn says at the beginning of his booklet, I think it's on the, uh, the Beast, that this Tennessee editor wrote about how when the Eastern European nations broke away from the Soviet Union and the Berlin Wall came down, he said many... 
newscasters and, and, and forecasters and pundits were, were, were surprised. He said, I was not surprised because I had been listening to Mr. Herbert W. Armstrong over the radio for years and got his Plain Truth magazine, and I knew he said that was going to happen. This was some outside news editor of a small paper over here in Tennessee. And he wrote that, and Mr. Gwynn was able to get that fine quote. I love to borrow that from her husband every time I can. That was an excellent quote. But anyway, that was very helpful. Many of those things happened, just many things. No one else was saying those things. Here was a man that God was using, and God used him to raise up a whole era of the church. And so I was brought into that era 60 years ago. And in those days, in the early three or five years of Ambassador College, the church was very small. In fact, all through the time I was in college for three years, we had three churches, Portland, Oregon, Eugene, Oregon, and Pasadena, California. And that's it. No other churches anywhere at all. And the total attendance was only about 100 people or less on the whole earth. There were a couple hundred people baptized from the previous tours scattered all over Texas and Arkansas and elsewhere, but no other churches. So that was it. Very small. So we didn't talk about the church. We asked each other, when did you come into the truth? When did you come into the truth? Now, brethren, that's a key thing all of us need to be thinking about always. The church may be persecuted. The church may be condemned. And you might even, if you're very weak, try to get your mind off the big picture, get offended at some minister or some situation or something. But you'd better always remember this principle. Where is the truth? And you find that's a very, very important thing in God's mind right here at the very end of the Bible. Third John, just before Jude and Revelation, he says here in Third John chapter 3, Anniversary, I mean, for I rejoiced greatly when brethren came and testified of the truth that is in you, just as you walk in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. Here he repeats it four times in about two, three verses. Verse 8, we therefore ought to receive such, that is, the servants of God, that we may become fellow workers, or some translations have it, co-workers, co-workers for the truth I wrote to the church you see the church is mentioned once but Diotrephes who loves to have the preeminence among them does not receive us this false leader was already taking over and putting out the faithful brethren he says then in verse 12 Demetrius has a good testimony from all and from the truth itself over and over in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, he mentions the truth, the truth, the truth. And that's what we came to talk about in the early days of Ambassador College. And you've always got to understand that, brethren. Nobody's perfect, but Jesus Christ has built a church, and that church was to endure, and that church has the basic truth. In those years, we came to realize the whole way of life. Mr. Arms taught us about the historical church of God. He reminded us that he just doesn't appear on top of a hill somewhere all by himself. He was ordained by the Oregon Conference of the Church of God. In fact, in his ordination certificate, they ordained him an apostle. 
Now, they didn't know what they were doing. Apostle means one sent with authority, and they used that for all their ministers. But that's interesting. That's what was on his ordination certificate. That's what he was ordained as. And he then was used to raise up this era of the church, of course, following on after them. But he taught us and, and acknowledged that it came, the basic, many of them, some of them came right down through history. The true church of God had always kept the seventh day Sabbath, and you can find that in history. And when they had the Bible and the more of the Bible available, they would keep one or more of the holy days, and some kept all the holy days, although Mr. Armstrong was the only one we know of in modern times to keep all seven of the holy days. But again, he didn't pick it out of the sky. I'm not putting him down. He said that himself. He used to explain that very openly. He said, I read it in their literature. They would talk about the Feast of Tabernacles and Pentecost and Atonement, but they didn't keep all of them. They just had a camp meeting in the fall at a different time, and they sort of did that in place of the Feast of Tabernacles. But in their writings, he could see that got him on the, on the, gave him a clue to where to look, you see. Then he began to put it all together in a wonderful way. But the church of God had preserved the Sabbath, the true Passover and the 14th day, and the real meaning of the Passover, and days of unleavened bread, and Pentecost, and so on. And some of them kept the Feast of Tabernacles, and he learned all those things. He had the name, the church of God, 12 times in the New Testament, the church of God, the church of God, the churches of God, the church of the living God, and so on. 12 different times, that's the name for the true church. He had that from them. The true church, or the Sardis church, as we understand it, they knew that the kingdom of God was to be on earth. He said the Adventists don't have the truth. They don't have the gospel. See, the gospel of the kingdom of God is talking about the good news of a coming world government here on earth to bring peace on earth based on God's laws. The Adventists don't have that. They have the writings of Ellen G. White, their prophetess, who said they would go off to heaven for a thousand years in heaven and have an investigative judgment, she called it, which is never mentioned in the Bible. And they were to go over the books and somehow these saints were to sit up there for a thousand years deciding what happened to you and me, I guess, whatever. And they have an unusual idea about that. So they did not have the gospel. They kept the seventh-day Sabbath, partially. Some of them don't keep it. But they do not keep God's holy days, so they don't understand God's plan, and they had a wrong gospel. They do not have the gospel of the kingdom of God, God's government on earth under Jesus Christ for that thousand-year period. So he got the true gospel from them. They understood about unclean meats. They understood about heaven and hell and immortality of the soul. The big things he added, of course, were the understanding of Israel and went way beyond what that really meant, beyond any man in modern times to help us really understand what's happening. And then he added, of course, the whole concept of God reproducing himself, frankly, the whole purpose of human existence. Those are two of the biggest truths he added. He added many other small truths that no other church had. But he had a, we had a whole way of life when I came that we learned. And I hope all of you are learning that and you brethren around the world. We don't make a big deal of it. And he didn't either, but he made a bigger deal about us to us students because we were there all the time. He used to have music appreciation class for us in a sense. We had a regular college class, but in case some didn't take it, he would bring over his... his uh, and we didn't have stereo yet, whatever it was, hi-fi, I guess he called it, and play good music for us, Russian Cossack choirs and, and symphony and, 
and uh, semi-classical music and the right kind of modern music too and good quality music though. He tried to teach us quality. God wants quality, a way of life. He tried to teach us about good health and he said get fresh food that can spoil and eat it before it does spoil. He knew all that way back before all these modern health letters ever came out. He was reading things along that line and also thinking through the whole purpose of of uh, God. And just one thing after the other, we learned a way of life. And it was a way of life permeating the headquarters church in the early days. We need to help more of you do that. But that's a wonderful thing. So God's true church, wherever it is, will understand about the Sabbath and the holy days and the whole purpose of God reproducing himself. It will understand about the whole way of life. And also, we will understand about prophecy in greater detail than other churches anywhere, which we of the living church of God do, and we will preach that to you. And we can preach that to you in greater detail because God gives a good understanding to those who do His commandments. As you know, Psalm 119, verse 172. And we have that understanding. And we have wonderful booklets on that by Mr. O'Gwen by Mr. Richard Ames and others explaining the details of Bible prophecy more than any church on earth. So we need to appreciate that. That's where it is. Not that we're so good, but we are giving you the full truth and understanding more than any church on earth. And Jesus Christ is the living head of his church. We are the historical continuation of the church of God. And we really need to think about that as Problems come on us and accusations are made. I know that Mr. Uh, uh, Crockett gave me this uh, thing off the Internet the other day. Uh, they had a biography about me and they had it on there and, and they someone printed that off. I guess it was Gavin or Red Fox or one of these bad guys that uh, always attack. They attack us. They attack United. They attack all the churches. But they were on my case and gave it to this feast site uh, management up here somewhere. And uh, but they apparently understand. Jonathan McNair was there and talked to them, and but uh, it was telling. Really, it isn't that bad. Actually, it just it has me actually being, I think, some job longer than I actually was. So that was good. But then it said I was a harsh dictator, and I would say strict. I would say that change that one word. I was too strict way back during certain years in the '60s, and I've tried to repent of that. As I get older, I get more mellow. And uh, some of you might not think so the way I preach. <laughs> anyway, but at any rate, uh, and, and then they had uh, one or two other errors that were in there. But otherwise, it just tells what I did. And I guess they thought that would make... Oh, then they put on the thing about, I guess, the things that are going to scare them about the Wisconsin tragedy, you know, where people were shot up. So they sent an article out of the paper and said, look at this man, you better have policemen at the door uh, when these people come to your come to your." Uh, uh, auditorium or whatever. So they were trying to frighten them away. But that's mild compared to what we're going to get later on. You know that. They're going to attack me. They're going to attack as they did attack Mr. Armstrong and call him a false prophet and all kinds of things. And when I was on the early baptizing tours, I've told you this, but you have to be there to have it, have it ringing in your ears, you know. You come to the door and Ted and I went up to this Louisiana place. Uh, this old farmer guy was there and and, and came up and he said, where are you boys from? 
He said, oh, we're from Ambassador College, Armstrong. And he reached for this chair and started to come right down on our head. And he wasn't kidding. We grabbed it and wrestled around with him. And I've told you the story. But we had several times when you mentioned Armstrong, boy, they were going to beat you up or shoot you. But God never let them do it. And it all worked out for good. God has always had a true church. Turn to Matthew 16. God has always had a true church. You know, Peter answered Jesus' question, Who do men say that I am? He said, You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And in verse 18, Matthew 16, 18, Jesus said, I also say to you that you are Peter. As you know, the Greek word here, look it up. All the commentaries and interlinears understand, have it rightly. Petros, P-E-T-R-O-S, which is the smaller form, the diminutive of Petra, a, a small rock or pebble. And on this rock, using a different Greek word, meaning a massive foundation stone, or can mean even a rock mountain or a rock cliff, on this huge rock, I will build my church. He didn't say Luther will build his church, or Henry VIII, who wants to commit adultery with Anne Boleyn, will build the Church of England so he can do that. <laughs> I will build my church, the church of God. And the gates of hell, or the grave, will not prevail against it. And how will the gates of hell, or the grave, not prevail? Well, first of all, the church will never die out. There will always be a church. And secondly, the church all dies out in each generation, of course. Everybody dies somewhere, but God keeps the church going down through time. So for the last 2,000 years, God has had continuously a church. Although, as we've explained, it was a small persecuted church, but it has always been called the church of God, and it has had the gospel of the kingdom of God, the gospel of Christ reign on earth, and it has preached, of course, about the holy days, at least some of them, and the plan of God. He says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Authority was given to the ministry. Christ has allowed a lot of these splits to come along, which is really not good. He's allowed it to test people. But brethren, as we get toward the end, I hope all of you can begin to prove where Christ is working because you'd better be sure that you're as close to Christ. You say, well, these people are not we eat wicked. No, they're not wicked in these other, gener uh, other groups necessarily. But he does show there is one church he's using and he shows that if others are watering dying things down, if they are becoming Laodicean or if they're coming this or that, they may not be in a place of safety, if you follow me. They may not be there. I want to be there if I'm still alive, and I think you do too. We cannot afford to play games with God. We cannot do that. We must not do that. So the church has always existed, guided by Jesus Christ. So Christ has guided and protected His church down through the dark ages. And we know there were men like Polycarp, who was a direct disciple of John, who carried on. And you read, we've had articles about it, how he continued to teach about the Sabbath. And the 14th day Passover, and Polycrates, and men on down through time to Paul, uh, down to uh, the Waldensians, Peter Waldo. And then we come over, how um, Stephen Mumford brought the church of God over here, uh, kept in the seventh day. And we've had men coming along, like Jacob Brinkerhoff. And we've had men like A.N. Duggar, and then Mr. Herbert Armstrong, and now we are here in the living church of God. Always God has had a church down through time. 
Christ tells us in Ephesians, I'll just refer you to it. I've read it many times, even recently. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 20 to 22. Christ is the living head of the church. He is the head over all things to the church. Ephesians chapter 1. Christ is alive. He is the living head of that church. And then in Revelation chapter 20, uh, 12, I mean, you remember how the church had to go into hiding because of persecution. And I'll read you about that a little bit more later. So the true church of God has always come along. Turn back to 1 Thessalonians, if you would. 1 Thessalonians now, uh, chapter uh, 2. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. And let's read here uh, in verse 14. He says, For you, brethren, you brethren in the Thessalonian church, became imitators, and that is the correct translation, not just followers, but the Greek word literally means imitate, imitators of the churches of God. Here's one of the 12 places where the church of God is named, of the churches of God uh, in Judea in Christ Jesus. That was the church, the church of God in Judea. For you also suffered as they did. So they were imitators of the church of God in Judea. Christ's headquarters church was never in Rome at any time. And you will not find that in the Bible, and you will not find that in history. The black-robed Catholic priests, even before they called themselves Catholic, but they began to gradually fight the Eastern Orthodox Church and try to get the stamp of approval on those in the West, as they called it. Sounds odd in history because we think Rome is East and we're West, but back then it was Constantinople was East and Rome was West. So they, they won out in the end as a bigger group, but they tried to make it as though that had been the headquarters. It never was of God's true church. Paul was not killed in Rome from everything we understand. He certainly never pastored the Roman church. Rather, he wrote in Romans 1, he wanted to establish them. Why would Paul dare say he wanted to establish the church if Peter was there and it was the headquarters church? Anyway, many other proofs, of course, that Paul was never pastor at Rome. He was never, never mentioned as being there. So uh, Jerusalem was the headquarters church, and they always looked to that as the headquarters church in that example. And uh, I want to refer you to something, and I don't want to go around assigning. I'll assign you some of these things that others wrote. But I would like to mention to all of you and assign you and you brethren around the world, if you don't have this booklet, Restoring Apostolic Christianity, Restoring Apostolic Christianity, get one. Ask one of our office people here today or my secretary, Monica, or, or Debbie, or Madeline, or anyone, and they will get you one. You need to study this, you brethren around the world. This is one of the most basic booklets on the topic I'm talking about, and I hope you will all get it. If you've lost your copy, get another one. We have plenty of them, and we want to change the title later anyway, so go ahead and get another one. We're not going to change the message, but just the title. Actually, we're going to, we're going to uh, retitle it, Restoring Original Christianity, or perhaps Recapturing Individual uh, Original Christianity, uh, that's Mr. Bomer's title, if, you, if we do that. Anyway, we're going to have a different title, and I wanted to make it original because apostolic has the wrong meaning. Some people think apostolic means Christ, uh, Catholic. Others think it means, uh, like these Pentecostal churches call themselves apostolic holiness, you know, and they holler and 
hoop and holler and all this kind of thing there and so on. But anyway, this is very basic. It really is. And uh, I know the man that wrote it. And uh, I... <laughs> but in spite of that, it's a very important booklet. In verse or page 8, he says, as renowned historian Edward Gibbon wrote, and he quotes right out from the secular historian who is a very worldly historian, not in the church. He's very respected, the most respected historian of that whole time period. Quote, the first 15 bishops of Jerusalem were all circumcised Jews and the congregation over which they presided united the law of Moses with the doctrine of Christ. So they believed in Moses and they, he was, thinks the law of Moses was the Ten Commandments and all the rest, which is a misunderstanding on his part. But he knows that was their doctrine, teaching what Moses wrote. It was natural that the primitive, I don't like that, but these old historians always use the primitive when they met the early, the early church. They weren't primitive. They were the early ones, which is the true ones. Uh, anyway, the tr primitive tradition of a church founded only 40 days after the death of Christ and was governed almost as many years under the immediate inspection of his apostle should be received as the standard of orthodoxy. That was natural. Why wouldn't it be? That was the headquarters church. The distant churches very frequently appealed to the authority of their venerable parent. Parent, the Jerusalem church of God. That was their parent. And the early church historians all understand that. And what did the Jerusalem church of God do? They did all these things that we do today. That was original. So you're not in some unusual sect. You new people, and you old people get it in your mind. Don't ever waver. You're carrying on the work of Jesus Christ through the original apostles and the servants of God today. On page 10 here of the booklet, he's talking about Paul coming up to Jerusalem. And after rejoicing in the good news Paul wrote about God's work among the Gentiles, the Jerusalem leadership told Paul... And here I'm quoting from the book of Acts, Acts chapter 21, quote, You see, brother, how many myriads, by the way, myriads means tens of thousands, myriads uh, of uh, Jews believe. I'm trying to get catch this thing that uh, uh, my uh, Jews there are who have believed, and they're all zealous for the law. That's verse 20. So as not to confuse, this is Acts 21, verse 20 now, and then going on. So as not to confuse or discourage these many Jewish Christians, tens of thousands of them, Paul was asked by the Jerusalem church to go through an offering ceremony to publicly demonstrate that he was not teaching in any way against God's laws. Here was this marvelous opportunity to say, oh, well, that old law was nailed to the cross. And you know, all the Protestants tried to make it... Make it out like that, like Paul did away with God's law. Here was his chance. Here was his chance. What did he do? The Jerusalem leaders exhorted Paul, quote, take these men along, these men that had had a Nazarite bow and had to do this sacrifice, and be purified with them, and paid all their expenses connected with the shaving of their heads. This will let everyone know, I'm quoting from the Jerusalem Bible here, which is a Catholic translation, by the way. It's not one of our translations, very respected. He says, let them know, this will let them know that there is no truth in the reports that they have heard about you 
and that you still regularly observe the law. In quote from the Bible, Acts chapter 21, this will show them that you, Paul, still regularly observe the law. About 30 years after everything was supposedly nailed to the law, the apostle of the Gentiles is proving to these men that he still regularly observed the law. So go back and read those quotes carefully for yourself. That's what the Bible says. It says that. So we're not doing anything that they didn't do. So it's a very important thing to understand. Now, we know that, of course, they were talking here about the spiritual law, but Paul even went along with some of their traditions as well, which were not unbiblical. It was a law of cleansing and thanksgiving at the end of the vow. It was not a sacrifice. He would not go through a blood sacrifice to take the place of Christ's sacrifice. You never find that done after, after Christ's crucifixion. But this kind of thing was done. And other things, they were following the Old Testament and following the pattern of the religion that God gave through Moses, except for the animal sacrifices and washings that had been added. Those things were not done away. The paradigm that the Protestants try to give you is that everything changed after Christ and you had a whole new structure, a whole new paradigm, a whole new model of Christianity, and all you have to do is believe. No, that was not original Christianity. Original Christianity was simply following the religion that God gave through Moses as magnified by Jesus Christ and the apostles by the Sermon on the Mount and the New Testament and so on, you see. And that was very logical to all those people. That's all they knew. They weren't told you just believe on Jesus and you're saved. He never said that. And the apostles never said that. No one else ever said that when you put the whole New Testament together. So we want to understand that there has always been a church of God and that church originally was headquartered in Jerusalem, Palestine, and was based on the way of God taught through Moses as magnified through Jesus Christ. Now let's turn to Revelation chapter 12 here and notice a little bit about the true church of God here. It describes it in chapter 12 of Revelation, verse 1, describes a sign in heaven, a woman, we know the church, clothed with the sun, on her head a garland of 12 stars. This was ancient Israel bringing forth the Messiah. Then being with child, she cried out and labored, and pain gave birth. And another sign appeared, a great dragon having seven heads and ten horns. Here comes Satan. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven, or had drawn. He had rebelled against God and taken one-third of the angels in that rebellion and threw them to the earth. And the dragon, Satan the devil, stood before the woman, now Israel at the time of Christ, who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. Probably several different ways, but the biggest way we know was when Herod killed all the little baby boys under two years old, remember? He was determined to get that kid wherever he was. He gave them even latitude in the time. Any boy that was under two was slaughtered. It must have been awful. He tried to destroy the Messiah. She, Israel, bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. Christ. And her child, then it jumps ahead hundreds of years. Well, here it jumps, uh, you know, a few uh, weeks ahead. Her child was caught up to God into his throne after Pentecost. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared. Well, it was actually before Pentecost. He was taken up to heaven right away. 
Then it jumps ahead, though, um, uh, a number of years. Then the woman, the true church, fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God. Is heaven ever called a wilderness? Of course not. Heaven is gorgeous. Gorgeous. The sea of glass and the angels and archangels singing in magnificent beauty. The church of God is taken to a place of safety in the wilderness on this earth somewhere. So old LaHaye's Left Behind series is left behind as far as the truth is concerned. He doesn't, he doesn't understand it at all. You know, I kind of think about him and some of these guys like this uh, old Baptist preacher talks about Norman Vincent Peale. Remember, he, he wrote the book, The Power of Positive Thinking. It has some good ideas in it, but it's a lot of, you know, like this, this Joel Osteen, by the way, here we just had was it 126 people or something, and he had 10,000 people the other night. I think they charged to get in, and he's the one with the pretty hairdo, and he says, God will bless you, whatever, and his whole purpose is just to make you rich and bless you and so on. And uh, he's quite a guy, but he, he's a sort of a disciple of that same movement coming from Norman Vincent Peale. And this old Baptist preacher said, he said, I find the Apostle Paul appealing, but I find Dr. Peale appalling. So anyway, that's the way it is about some of these people. The woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her there 1,260 days. And we know that those days prophetically usually meant years. So for 1,260 years from the rise of the Roman Empire under Justinian revival until 1814, the fall of Napoleon, you have 1,260 years is probably that period of time when the woman had to flee. And then when the fifth revival of the Roman Empire fell after Napoleon was put down and the Catholic power diminished greatly, then uh, the church came more out into the open. And war broke out in heaven. Well, then we'll go on to that part. So we see the true church of God existed, but God protected them. They were taken to a place. Who was taken to a place? People who were Laodicean, People were saying, I don't like Bishop Jones and he, he, he offended me and he, he made me park somewhere I didn't want to park and so I'm out of here. I don't like Bishop or, or Deacon Jones or whoever it is. You see what I mean? They, those guys were not taken to a place of safety. Try to think about it. Brethren, don't let anything become a stumbling block to you. Always see the big picture. Try to think in your mind always, where is God working and if God works through someone imperfect, and I am very imperfect, but if God works through someone imperfect, and Mr. Ames and Dr. Winnale and Mr. Parting and Mr. Crockett and all of us are imperfect, and we don't claim to be perfect, but if the work is being done and the proof is being, proof is being preached and we're in the church of God and Christ is the head of that church, you back off. And get your priorities straight and you stay and put your trust not in us, but put your trust in Christ. If some mistake is made, what if I transfer some minister somewhere uh, to get rid of him? Well, that happened to me two or three times, frankly, and I didn't give up and quit. I just had to say, God, you take care of it. He always took care of it. Always took care of it. And that has no doubt happened to others in the work at various times. But God will take care of it if you put your trust in him, brethren. You've got to do that. So think about it. The ones who are faithless 
and who get in a wrong attitude, they were not taken to the place of safety back then. They're not going to be today either. So then uh, you need to think about who is taken to a place of safety and who will be taken. Turn back to Hebrews chapter 11 here briefly. Hebrews 11. And notice in Hebrews 11 and verse 6. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And brethren, that whole concept of walking with God is so important. If you don't do that regularly, you're going to lose faith. You know how many times it says in the Old Testament, in one way or the other, several different places, if with all your heart, if with all your heart you seek him, you shall surely find him. And if you try to study, you pray, Father, show me, you're doing it regularly, you're doing it every day, then your feelings won't get hurt too bad. You will get over any hurt. You will forgive. You will forget. You'll move on. And you can walk with God no matter what. No matter what. So you've got to put your trust in God in the hard times ahead because they will come. Now let's turn back to Revelation again, if you would. Revelation. And this time... Uh, turn to Revelation uh, 12 again starting in verse 7 Revelation 12 and war broke out after the 1260 years the church had to hide out from the Catholic church during the dark ages then a short time of peace comes which we've had for the last few hundred years Then at the very end, a war broke out in heaven. And that's talking about something, brethren, just ahead of us. One of the false prophets around here somewhere said the war has already happened a few years ago. No, it has not happened yet. When it happens, you'll see things happening big time. A war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon fought and his angels that did not prevail. So the great dragon was cast out, that servant of all called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. The whole world is deceived. He was cast out to the earth and his angels with him. And so it shows how he's cast down the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God night and day. And they overcame him by the blood of the lamb because when he's finally cast down to earth this last time, he is furious and he will persecute the church terribly. And that has not happened. That has not happened in modern times at all to the Sardis church or our era or the Laodicean era, which were now, of course, entered. But they did not love their lives to the death because some of them were probably tortured and would, would rather have died. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth, for the devil has come down to you having great wrath because he knows that he has a short time. So when this final casting down takes place, it may be just be a year or two before the tribulation and three and a half years or so before Christ comes. Now, when the dragon saw he'd been cast out, he persecuted the woman. Again, that kind of persecution we have not had. He persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child, the true church. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness, again, not up in heaven, a wilderness here on earth to her place where she is nourished for what? 
It doesn't say 1260 days or 42 months. This time it says a time, times, and half a time. And often the term time is used in the Bible as a year. So you have one time, two times, and half a time, three and a half years during the Great Tribulation, which also lasts three and a half years. And so the true church of God is protected and goes to a place of safety on this earth. Who goes to a place of safety? Again, think about it. You belong to the church of God? No, I'm going to fade into the world. I don't want to get hurt. But brethren, if you don't give the right answer, you may get hurt a lot more. You may get hurt an awful lot more unless you put your faith and trust in God and say, I am a follower of Christ. I am a true Christian. I do believe in the church of God. And then you put your life in God's hands. I'm just telling you, think about it ahead of time. We're entering some very terrible times. I don't mean tomorrow, but over the next two or three years, things are speeding up already, and they will speed up. And you need to be ready. So think about who is protected. And you've always got to have a right attitude and think, what does what is God really doing here? Because He may turn the whole thing around. As I say, He might not have you thrown in prison. He might have you put on a bus to the airport and send you to... Jordan, <laughs> you can join this crazy group over in Petra, you know, or wherever it is, and you would be taken to safety. I, I don't think that's the way. I'm not trying to imply that. I'm just showing you that could happen. We don't know the ways of God. God's ways are mysterious and past finding out sometimes. Back in Ezekiel chapter 5, many of you know that. Turn back there with me, Ezekiel 5. Remember, brethren, the book of Ezekiel was written over 100 years after ancient Israel had already gone into captivity. Nearly all scholars would understand that. But they don't understand the other part when he talks about something future on the house of Israel and the house of Judah, and he often distinguishes them. It means modern Israel. The Americans, the British-descended peoples, the democracies of northwestern Europe, and so forth. That's who it's talking about. And so it tells him here what's going to happen. Chapter 5, You son of man, take a sharp sword, take it as a barber's razor, pass it over your head and beard, then take scales to weigh and divide the hair. You shall burn with fire. Now fire normally always means terrible persecution. It sometimes even refers to the great tribulation. One-third in the midst of the city when the days of the siege are finished. Then you shall take one-third and strike it around it with a sword. So one-third perish right in the city. Another-third are killed in, in, in some kind of warfare. And one-third you shall scatter in the wind. I will draw out a sword after them. So one-third are in the wind. And, of course, God then causes them to be taken to, into slave camps. Then he says, notice verse 3, you shall also take a small number. Here is the house of Israel, modern American Britain. You shall take a small number of them and bind them in the edge of your garment. Well, if you're in the edge of the garment of God's servant, you would be protected. You wouldn't be in the fire, a place of safety. Are you okay? You're okay, brethren, if your attitude is really right. But God is going to test you and He's going to test you and you and you and me to the very end. He wants to know where we stand. 
Because if we get our feelings hurt easily today, we might make it to the place of safety, but you might not get the cave that you thought you would get in Petra. And maybe I'll be gone and Mr. Ames or Dr. Winnale or someone else will be in charge. Maybe this bad guy here, Mr. Bomer, might be in charge of your cave. <laughs> I'll pick on him. He's, I'm just kidding. And you say, oh, he didn't give me the right cave. You see what I mean? And you've got to get your feelings hurt because we're going to have a Mr. Waterhouse made mistakes, of course, as we all do. But he called Petra the final place or the place of final training, I think is the way he worded it, the place of final training. And I think he was right. I think when we get there, whoever's in charge with the other ministers will be giving the kind of detailed Bible studies and thoughtful talks and about we're getting ready. And another few months now, we'll be over these cities out here and you will be at that time. But some will get bored. You may have to eat uh, literally. He might recreate manna. How's God going to feed all these people? And you might not get the water you want. You won't get your wine. Mr. Party and I are going to be in bad trouble. We can't drink our glass of wine each night. We'll just have to drink water. Why did the Israelites live so long, though? You know, no sickness. Well, they had perfect, fresh air. Their diet was perfect because God gave them a kind of food He created that didn't tell His taste good, but it was perfect. And the water was perfect. And so, they, and also they had to get lots of exercise in the fresh air because they had to keep walking and walking and walking all the time. You see what I mean? So it would look bad, but God took care of them for 40 years and their foot did not swell and their shoes never wore out and so on. But you might not like that and you're thrown together and you don't get your favorite cave and you're going to have to be with these other church people that you don't like as well as you should and so you're going to get kind of edgy after a while. You'll have to fast and to pray even in Petra and say, God, help me. Help me to yield to let Jesus Christ live His life in me. Grant that I am genuinely loving and kind and patient and forgiving and serving even in this situation. He will be watching you. He will be working with you. He will be fashioning and molding you even then. Because even then, some are going to get in a bad attitude just like they did when God dealt with ancient Israel. I've had enough. I'm going to contact this Bedouin guy that brings his news here and there, and I'll just follow him out. And I hear they're having fun over in Babylon and fun over in Cairo, and I'll go there and get some beer and have a good time over there. I think these church people are for the birds. Well, you may be for the birds if you do that, as you know. But these things will happen. God says here in the Bible, then take some of them and throw them into the midst of the fire. Some of those that had even apparently had been taken to place of safety and burn them in the fire. From there, a fire will go out where? To Russia or Gog and Magog or the Chinese? No, to all the house of Israel, all 12 tribes. So all of the people of God have to be careful. All of us have to be in a right attitude, even in the place of safety, and put our faith and trust in the living Christ to guide things, to know that it will work out in the end. Let's turn now to Revelation 3, brethren. Revelation uh, 3, if you would. And I want to start here in verse 7. He says, To the angel of the church at Philadelphia, that's the church era 
that frankly we are carrying on the work of Christ that he began through his servant Herbert Armstrong and we're trying to carry on those same traditions do the work in that same way preach the full truth as best we know it these things he says who is holy who is true because Christ is true he knows he who has the key of David which has to do with right government because David was the benchmark for the right righteous kings of Israel He who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one's opens. I know your works. See, I've set before you an open door. Who's going through the open doors more than any other church on earth today of the churches of God? I think you know that. We are. There's no other competitor at this time. And no one can shut it. Man cannot shut it. It's being done and it will grow and grow. For you have, are we big and mighty in numbers or money? No, we're little and small and lacking in money. We need more men. We need more money. We need more power from God. You have little strength. But what about us in spite of that? You have kept my word. That's what we've got to do. You have kept my word and have not denied my name, my authority, everything I stand for. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan, these false churches who say they are Jews and are not, but lie... They're not other church of God groups, I don't think, in this case. They're these worldly churches. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and know that I have loved you because you have kept my command to persevere. We've been willing to persevere and carry on the Philadelphia era of the work of God and go through the open doors, preach the full truth, have that fire in our belly, that passion to reach out to the whole earth. Because you've kept this command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial. God will give our people, if we are Philadelphian, a place of safety. I'll keep you from the hour of trial, which is the great tribulation, of course, which will come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Behold, I am coming quickly. Christ is coming quickly, brethren. Please get ready. Don't let anyone overthrow you. Learn to put your faith and trust in God. And I've covered this before, but I'm doing it a little bit different way because it hit me. And I guess we can't help to think about our own life as we get older, but I came to Ambassador College 60 years ago, and I've seen many evangelists come and go, and I've seen many deacons come and go, and I've seen many members come and go. So many have dropped away. And they're gone. And most of them don't really wake up and repent in this life, if you do. But I hope you will not ever fall away. You are in the true church of God, doing the work of God. Don't let anything take away the trust that you must have in Jesus Christ, the living head of the church. So I'm coming quickly. Hold fast that you have, that no one may take your crown. Don't let someone get you upset. And take your crown that way because you get your feelings hurt. Don't let anyone come along with some false doctrine and get you off one, you know, one little thing. Look at the big picture again. Who is carrying on the real church of God following Mr. Armstrong and the true apostles? Who is really doing the work of God? Who is preaching the full truth of God? And who has the government of God too? The very government we're preparing for and trying to carry out that government. And learn that way of life so we can carry out that government and teach and practice that over the whole world in a few years. Who is doing that? 
So you know the answer, most of you. Walk with God and put your faith and trust in God and don't let anyone, anyone take your crown.